Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. I grew up in a Catholic home. My mom was extremely devout Catholic, much more so than my dad. I'm pretty sure we would not have gone to Mass every week if it had been left up to my father. He was an alcoholic, had a very serious drinking problem. But my mom always made sure that we found our way to church every Sunday. And so I grew up with a very strong belief in faith. And much later on, I was baptized again, Mm. uh, probably when I was a junior in high school in a Baptist church. And through the years, have have gone to different churches of different denominations. And so when I was in Washington, we went to a very conservative Anglican church. Mm. And then today, living here in Nashville, we go to a, a Baptist church. But if you ask my mom today, she would say, I'm, I'm still a Catholic, <laughs> always a Catholic. There's a pine wobbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings, and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. From Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. On today's show, former Attorney General and White House Counsel, Alberto Gonzalez. We'll talk about where he comes from, how he found his way into the Texas Supreme Court and later the White House, and what it was like being part of the fight against terrorism from the inside of the West Wing. We'll also talk leadership, religious liberty, and more. So stay with us. I was born in, in Texas and raised in Houston. So when I think about my hometown, it's Houston, Texas. It's both of my parents were born in Texas. My grandparents, three of the four, were born in northern Mexico. Back then, of course, they they crossed back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'd come to the United States for work and then go back. Right. I've been often asked the question, you know, did they come here lawfully? And honestly, I don't mm-hmm. know the answer. My mom doesn't know the answer. Well, I suspect that Probably at times, uh, given the circumstances, they came over without documentation, and other times, perhaps they had it. I just don't know. As a kid, there weren't dreams of politics, law, much less working in the White House. It was a dream of sorts just to make it through high school. You know, my father had a second grade education, and my mom had a sixth grade education. So growing up, they considered it a successful achievement when my sister and I both graduated from high school. That was a big deal in our family. And uh, even though I did well in high school and I was an all-district strong safety, no one ever talked to me about going to college. So I did, like a lot of people in my sort of economic status, I enlisted in the Air Force. Hmm. Ultimately, that's how I found my way going to college. Did you know you wanted to go into law when you went to college? No, I, I didn't think about becoming a lawyer until I was a junior at Rice. I majored in political science because it's an area that I really was interested in. And 
most of the political science majors at Rice were all going to go to law school. So I, said, I thought, well, maybe I should think about going to law school. That's really the first time I thought about it. We just, we didn't, I, I, we knew no lawyers, uh, no judges, and um, just didn't think much about the legal profession growing up. I wanted to play center field for San Francisco Giants because <laughs> Willie Mays was my hero. But uh, I quickly realized my dreams exceeded my talent. So. <laughs> so out of college, you were in a law firm for a while. What's the journey like from practicing law to becoming a judge? It's a long road, I imagine. But Well, you know, I never tried cases. I just wasn't a litigator, and so I never thought about being a judge. After 13 years, I was practicing law at Vincent and Elkins in Houston. It's a big law firm, and I was a transactional lawyer. I found myself dissatisfied or unfulfilled. Maybe that's a better word. I felt like uh, there was surely there was something more to life than what I was doing. Mm. And so when George W. Bush was elected governor of Texas, I was offered the position of being his general counsel, and I really kind of jumped at the chance because I was ready for a change. Mm. Did you know him before that? Not really. I'd only met him a couple of times. I was very surprised that he asked me to come work for him. Mm. And I remember telling my wife that it would just be for a few years, and then we'd go back to our wonderful West University, (laughs) West University life. I quickly realized how much I enjoyed it. I felt like I was really making a difference for the first time in my life. So I worked for Bush as his general counsel for three years, and then I was appointed Secretary of State, did that for one year. And then the opening came up on the Texas Supreme Court, and I knew Governor Bush was going to ask me to do this because the person that left was Raul Gonzalez, the only Hispanic on the court. And President Bush has always been a great believer in diversity in our government institutions, and given the large Hispanic population in Texas, I knew he'd want to appoint a Hispanic, the only because we didn't, wouldn't have any Hispanics on the court. And uh, sure enough, the day after the announcement, Earl's announcement, we're hosting the Mexican energy minister for breakfast at the governor's mansion. And after breakfast, the governor asked me to come upstairs to the residence. And we sat down and he asked me, do you want to go on the court? And my answer was, do you want me to go on the court? Mm. And he said, well, it's not what I want. What do you want? I said, I don't know. I was worried because I had no trial experience or anything like that. I talked to various friends and advisors over the next few weeks and ultimately decided this was the best thing for me and for the court to do this. So that's how I got on the court. Mm. That must have felt monumental. Sure. um, It's not lost on me that within certain households in Texas and around the country, there's a special pride that someone named Gonzalez was on the Supreme Court of Texas or the West Wing Halls Mm -hmm. or was the Attorney General of the United States. I know that there is special pride that someone like me with my kind of background that that sends a very powerful message here in America. Mm. Governor Bush soon became President Bush, and Gonzalez was invited to join the staff as Chief White House Counsel, essentially as the lead lawyer for the president. It was so exciting to be part of a transition. It's so hopeful. Everything is so new and exciting. And you think everything's possible. And Governor Bush had worked so well with Democratic leaders in the Texas legislature. We all just thought the same thing would happen in Washington, One of the disappointments about serving in Washington was that how political it is, and that was that was disappointing. But nonetheless, it was a tremendous opportunity to work in the White House for four years, and then, of course, to go over the Department of Justice. But of course, so many of their plans and intentions were derailed on a bright morning in September of 2001. Where were you on 9-11? I gave a speech. I was in Norfolk, Virginia. I flew out of 
Dulles Airport about 7.30 that morning to give that speech. And that's the same airport that American 77 flew out of, which is the airplane that crashed into the Pentagon. That plane took off within an hour of my plane, so I was in the terminal at the same time as the terrorists, and I've often wondered whether, you know, did our paths cross, did our eyes meet. So I get to the I get to the hotel in Norfolk where I'm speaking, and the first tower's already been hit, so I get on the phone with my deputy who's in the Situation Room, and we weren't quite sure what was happening. And then I finished my speech, and by that time the second tower's been hit, and we know we're under attack. And so I spend the day trying to get back to the White House. Mm. By the time I got to the airport, they had shut it down, so I'm stranded, and I was traveling with one of my my lawyers, and we ran into a naval officer from Norfolk Naval Station who gave us a ride to the naval station. I went to the base commander and showed my credentials and said, can you help us get back to Washington? And we waited for several hours just watching TV like everyone else. Our communications were spotty at best, which is kind of frightening. Obviously, it's a lot better today, but we realized we had some serious challenges with respect to communications. And finally, the Navy got clearance to fly me back in a Navy helicopter. So they flew me to Andrews Air Force Base, which is where they hangar Air Force One. And then there was a White House fan waiting for me, and they took me to the White House. And I went to the—there's a bunker in the east wing of the White House where Cheney was at and other senior members of the administration. And so I went there, and I spent the rest of the day just going back and forth to the Situation Room, to my office on the second floor of the West Wing, to that bunker, just making sure all the legal issues were being addressed. And then about 7 o'clock, I got word that President Bush was coming home. He had began that day in Florida. When I'm asked, I'm often asked, of all the things you've done, what stands out the most? And it is standing on the Oval Office porch the evening of 9-11 and watching Marine One bring President Bush home that day. I'll never forget that. It was such a historic day. And And here's the commander-in-chief coming home, and this is someone that I've known from our days in Texas. And I was very, very curious about what I would see in his face. And uh, as as soon as I saw him, I I knew we were going to be okay. I mean, he was determined. I couldn't see anger, but I I know he was very—he was mad. And we set to work doing what had to be done to protect our country. I'm often asked, were you guys scared? I mean, we had a job to do, uh, and we all understood it. We took our cue from the commander-in-chief, and we just did our job. I never sensed anybody was scared or frustrated. We got tired after, you know, days and weeks and months of, you know, going at it full speed ahead, but we just did our job. In those days after 9-11, what, what was the job? What were you responsible for? Well, the president basically had three objectives in the immediate aftermath. One is to hold accountable those responsible, which, of course, would mean that we had to make sure the president had the legal authorities that he needed to use force uh, if he ultimately decided that's what he wanted to do. The second thing was to make sure that a second attack didn't happen again. And so we had to look at the authorities that he would have to defend our country, for example, standing up combat air patrols over New York City and Washington, D.C., having the military you know, out in subway stations and bus terminals, things of that nature. And then the final thing that we were expected to do is determine how could we help those families and businesses that had been injured or harmed as a result of the attacks. And so that required us looking at what authorities did President Bush have in a time of war, you know, extraordinary authorities that might exist. So these are the things that we looked at. There were a host of novel legal issues that had not been looked at since uh, Pearl Harbor. Some had never been considered at all. So 
as lawyers, we were very, very busy looking at authorities. What authority did the president have to do things? These are the things that we worried about. Yeah. I'll never forget, I think in October, you know, it was like October 25th or something like that after 9-11. I, I flew for the first time post 9-11. And you just had this incredible sense walking to the airport of like, oh, wow, this is a completely different world. I mean, there's military personnel. And I remember going through the, the Seattle Tacoma airport and it, it, the intensity of that security experience with soldiers with you know automatic weapons and dogs and everything it was just completely the world changed overnight and most people were okay with it most yeah. people wanted it they expected it and yeah. so you're right the world was completely different as a person of faith like what are you thinking what is what's your spiritual life look like in the midst of this is it a blur a lot of it is a blur you know president bush is very much a person of faith mm. but he, he wasn't one i mean I don't recall a, a time where we ever prayed in the White House. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's part of the reason, maybe because it, you know, it is a government office. But there was never any question in my mind about his faith. But yeah, uh, going home and praying with my wife in those early, those first few days, I remember that. It was a time of great uncertainty. But also, I took a lot of comfort and strength in my faith, knowing that we were going to be okay. We were extremely, extremely busy. And when I look back on it now, I, one of the things I do regret about my service as much as I honor my service and appreciate it is I missed a lot of my sons growing up. Mm-hmm. And we have three great boys today, young men, and my wife deserves all the credit because she basically had to, had to carry that burden for yeah. me. But, you know, we always went to church every Sunday. And I think that was that was important. President Bush and Andy Card, President Bush's first chief of staff, he, he was married to a minister. And and so making sure that we all took care of ourselves was very, very important, going to church. That's something that we always tried to do, no matter what else was going on mm. in the White House or in the world. The only time I can remember ever missing church was the morning, I believe this is true, the morning that we, we captured Saddam Hussein. Mm. I remember getting a call from the White House. It was early Sunday morning. I think this is right and being told, we captured Saddam Hussein, do you want to come into the White House? I said, okay, I'll be right there. I remember it snowed heavily, and I driving in, I think that's the only time I remember missing church. I remember there was an interview I saw a couple of years ago with Bill Clinton, where he was talking about working in the White House, and he said, I guarantee you, if you asked anybody who, who worked in the White House, you know, if, to reflect on it, you know, they'd say, I don't miss the crazy hours. You know, I don't miss being away from my family. I don't miss... I don't miss kind of the constant pressure and intensity, but I do miss the work. The work felt so meaningful and so monumental. It's incredibly, it's cool. I mean, to be able to have walk-in privileges into the Oval Office to see the President of the United States and to work on such consequential decisions, and particularly to work with someone that you really know and respect, it was just an incredible four years to be able to do that in a very consequential time in particular. Mm -hmm. I will always treasure that. It's funny, I don't think I missed a day of work in four years. I don't think I ever got sick enough to miss work. I wanted to be there. Yeah, I think Bill Clinton is certainly right. It's just, I mean, it was tough. I would do it again in a second. Huh. My wife wouldn't let me, but, <laughs> but <laughs> if asked, I, I just fundamentally believe that we are great because of the greatness of our leadership. And if you're asked to serve, if you can possibly do it, I think you should do it. Mm. So what does leadership mean to you when you say that word? What comes to mind when you... You know, there have been thousands of books and essays written about leadership. I don't have uh, a corner of wisdom on what leadership is. But when I look at the presidency, I don't think there's a job or vocation where integrity matters more. Mm. 
this is the most powerful position in the world. I want to know that that power is not going to be abused for personal political gain. I also know that the decisions are so incredibly hard that no mortal man should have to should have to make them himself or herself. I do not believe that you can effectively serve as president if you don't believe in God and if you don't believe in the power of prayer. And when I talk about leadership and the presidency around the country, I don't care who the audience is, I always make that point. Hmm. I do not believe you can serve effectively in that job if you don't believe in God and you don't believe in the power of prayer because it's just so hard. And everyone thinks, you know, the president has an easy job. And it's true, the president's surrounded by the best and the brightest. But my goodness, when you think about putting people's lives at risk and combat, it's incredibly heavy burden. And so I think faith is so important in that job in particular, but also in the advisors. I think having faith in what you're doing, confidence in the decisions you're making, I think it's very, very important. And you guys had to make hard decisions, controversial decisions. Those were, those were and remain years that people tell sort of different narratives about. First off, when it comes to some of those controversial decisions, you know, the rendition, the enhanced interrogations, things like that, from your perspective, how are those decisions being made? And how did your faith inform some of that? That's a very good question. This may be viewed as controversial by some in your audience. I think it's important as a lawyer to appreciate and understand that you have a job as a lawyer to give legal advice. Hmm. That legal advice or that legal interpretation or calculation may produce a result that may morally offend you. But nonetheless, as you give advice, it's up to the policymaker, in this case, the President of the United States, to decide whether or not to move forward with what you say is legally permissible. Mm -hmm. And I had the kind of relationship with President Bush where I could say, yes, the law allows you to do this. But Mr. President, what are the moral implications here? How is history going to judge this particular activity? But I would always be, it always be very, very clear, this is my personal opinion. This yeah. is not my legal judgment. Again, my first responsibility as a lawyer is to just simply say, this is what the law allows you to do, or the law prohibits you from doing this. Even if I felt it was reprehensible and against what I believed in, I think it would have been wrong for me to shade my legal advice based upon my moral beliefs. That's not my role. If I believe that I can't do that, if I can't give my legal advice without being compromised by what I believe ethically, then I should resign, quite mm. frankly. But to shade my beliefs, I think, would have been wrong. And, and I, some, there were times where I questioned the lawyers that I worked with from other agencies and departments. When their opinions might change over time or they might waver, I would question them as to whether or not, you know, okay, what's driving this change? Why are you wavering? Is it because of ethical or moral belief? Is it because you're afraid of the criticism? Again, very, very important that you have the lawyers, particularly in these very difficult times, the policymakers have to make decisions. They have to be courageous enough to say, this is what the law allows, this is what the law doesn't allow, and not be affected by your moral beliefs. I imagine that's a fine line to walk. You know, your own conscience pushing you in one direction, and then your job is to answer a question honestly about something that's sort of external to yourself. There was clearly a lot of disagreement amongst yeah. the lawyers. And people think, you know, they make a big deal about the fact that there was disagreement. These are the hard questions and lawyers are paid to disagree. And I think that disagreement, that discussion was very, very important in coming out with the right outcome. And I, I always try to let President Bush know whenever there was disagreement between the lawyers mm -hmm. so that he would know it wasn't an easy answer and there was disagreement. Is there anything you look back on and go, I wish I'd done that differently? 
Of course. Yeah. Yeah. These jobs are so hard. Yeah. <laughs> I'm often asked, well, what would you do differently? And I'm usually reluctant to sort of uh, categorize or itemize uh, the things that I would do differently. But of course, um, these are very, very hard decisions. Life would be great if we had do-overs. And that once you make a mistake, you could do it over again. It doesn't work that way. But yeah, when you're in these kind of positions, if you don't think that President Trump and Attorney General Sessions and everyone else up there aren't making mistakes, isn't going to make a mistake, then you don't have a realistic appreciation of what it's like in these jobs. I'm sure. So, yes, there were some cases where I gave advice to the president about his authorities where the Supreme Court of the United States said, no, not quite right. Of course I would do that differently. If I knew after the fact how the court was going to come out on a particular case, I may disagree and still disagree with the court's decision, but yeah, I wouldn't have given the same advice, of course. After the president's first term, Gonzalez was tapped to become the attorney general. I asked him to contrast the roles. You know, at White House counsel, you're a staffer. It's a very important staffer, but your whole schedule, your world revolves around the principal, the president of the United States. If he's in the West Wing, you're in the West Wing. Mm-hmm. That's not true. If you're the attorney general, you're the principal. And everyone who works at the Department of Justice, their schedule revolves around you. As counsel, I had 14 lawyers. There were 125,000 people that worked for me at Justice, $25 billion budget at Justice. And uh, of course, as White House counsel, I never testified before Congress. As the chief law enforcement officer of the country, you're expected to do that from time to time. I did do quite a few media interviews when I was counsel, but it increased exponentially when I became the attorney general, just a lot of interest on law enforcement issues, things of that nature much different role, much more visible as attorney general, but as such, much more difficult. I'd have to confess that probably being White House counsel was more more fun. I saw the president every day. As a cabinet secretary, you don't do that. You don't get to see the president every day. And as attorney general, you're going to be involved in decisions where there are winners and losers, and the losers don't like losing, and you're going to be criticized, and it was hard. It was the greatest professional privilege of my life to be the attorney general, but it was probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life also. What were some of the highlights? What are moments you look back at with pride? In terms of the top two, I'd say uh, fighting terrorism and protecting children. One of the things that I focused on was protecting children from Internet predators. It's a terrible situation that exists today, the vulnerability of our children and women, sex trafficking. So... That was an area that was really important to me. My wife got involved in it as well, and she did volunteer work for the National Center for Missing Exploited Children. So that was extremely gratifying, and I think we made significant progress in that area. And so I would say that's a highlight. The last 10 years has been really interesting with regard to religious liberty, LGBT rights, lawsuits over weddings, all of this kind of stuff. You know, as a, as a lawyer and as somebody who's been part of the White House and is watching this, like, what do you observe? And, you know, where do you think things are headed? What, what are your reflections on any of that? We had a pretty good idea as lawyers, for example, the Defense of Marriage Act. We believed it was only a matter of time before the court would strike that down, just because our sense of where things were headed uh, in the law. The appointments of the Supreme Court have become sort of the new battleground. People are frustrated. Uh, they see the inaction of Congress in addressing some of these issues. And they look at the court as the place where these things are going to be resolved. And that's why um, there's so much energy and 
money poured into these confirmations. I don't know if it's the right place for these things to be debated, quite frankly. Sometimes I, I do wish there would be additional leadership shown by both the president and the Congress. When I think about what the founders intended, I think, I think many of these issues uh, were meant to be decided within the elected branches where there is accountability to the American people. Because mm. it, once it goes to the court and it's constitutionalized as a constitutional violation or constitutional principle, there's nothing anybody can do about it except pass constitutional amendment, which, of course, is extremely difficult. So I do worry about that. I, I must confess being worried about Christianity being under attack. I think we've gone beyond tolerance. People expect Christians in particular to be so tolerant of differing views, and yet my sense is there's not a reciprocal tolerance of Christian beliefs, and I think that's very, very unfortunate. I think that Christianity will, in the future, will become more and more under attack. And I think that is to be expected, and we should accept it. It's not going to be, I think, as easy as it was maybe back in the 50s, in the June Cleaver days, to be a Christian, even. It, it, talk about trial and tribulations. I, I think that that's happening today, and I think it's just going to get worse. And, you know, I think that's the price of being a Christian, and that has to be okay. If you truly have faith and you believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, you know, I just say, okay, I'm okay, God. Okay, Jesus, I'm, let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm often asked to predict about the future of institutions and the future of our country. A lot's going to be driven by events well beyond our control, like 9-11 changed our country in a way. Pearl Harbor changed, and World War II changed our country in a fundamental way. And so and I hate to say this, but there will be other similar kind of events that will test us and are going to change our country. Yeah. You know, this is something that I know other people have said it, but you didn't go to the White House planning on fighting a war on terror. No, it finally transformed the Bush presidency. We had such, yeah. you know, hopes about immigration, other major policy initiatives, all of those had to be shelved. They all, you know, took a backseat to protecting America. Yeah. Do you ever think you'll go back to politics, get back involved? Again, if my wife were to answer that question, <laughs> she would say no way. Now, I think she would say that half kidding. I think she would say she would support me in terms of whatever I wanted to do. You know, I'm, I'm very happy here. We love Nashville, but I would never say never given the right opportunity. The challenge for someone like me is given what I've done, what would that look like, you know, to do something else that would challenge me, that would find fulfilling? There are limited options, but, you know, you never say never. In 2016, he published True Faith and Allegiance, his memoir of his time in the Bush administration. I asked him, what does he hope the book accomplishes? Ultimately, I decided to write this book primarily for my sons. I wanted them to know what I did and why. Mm. I thought that that was important for me to do, and I thought it would be important for them to know that because of all the stuff that's been out there and having to go to school and, and sit through classes where teachers are criticizing the Bush administration or mentioning Al Gonzalez. So I, th that's the primary reason I wrote the book. And I know that there are events and, and people that I talk about in the book where people will have different opinions and views about those things, and that's okay. It's my book. It's my, <laughs> it's my perspective. And so if they have a different perspective, they can write their own book as far as I'm concerned. So I tried to be accurate. I tried to be fair. And I tried to be kind. 
So, uh, you know, I, uh, people, as a general matter, have been very, very gracious in their remarks, uh, their views about the book. And so that, that makes me feel good. But again, it was primarily written for my sons. Do you feel optimistic that with time and with distance from the circumstances that the legacy of that administration is going to be vindicated? I do. I really do. I think it's certainly true of, of most administrations For sure. with the passage of time. Yeah, I do believe that the Bush administration doesn't get enough credit. And, you know, President Obama didn't didn't help us much. And then we've seen the Bush administration seem to get blamed for everything going wrong in, yeah. during the Obama administration. And um, so, yes, absolutely. I th- I'm very proud of my service. I know we weren't perfect and we made mistakes. And I, I gladly admit to that. But you know, I am so proud. And I, you know, I think if President Bush were sitting here today, he would, he would express the same kind of, of um, pride in the things that he accomplished and optimism. And that we've, I think we've laid a very strong foundation for the future of our country. I am very optimistic by nature, and I, I remain optimistic about America and our future. We have some serious challenges, no question about it, but we live in the greatest country on the face of the earth. Thanks to God. Now first he sings, and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for a preview to next week's episode. But first, Harbor Media is a production of the Narrativo Group. This episode was produced and mixed by me, Additional editing by T.J. Hester. It was mixed by Mark Owens. Our soundtrack is by Dan Phelps. Our theme song is by Roman Candle. If you haven't already, check out our new show, Steadfast with Sandra McCracken, a show where she sits down with friends, mentors, and people she admires to talk about how God's steadfast love shows up in every season of our lives. We'll be back next week with a new episode featuring my friend, singer-songwriter Melanie Penn. So you were like 22. Yeah. Show up in New York. Yeah. So what happens next? Dun, 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 dun. There you are. I sound so old when I tell us these stories. I lived in a room in the East Village in an East Village tenement building. It was $600 a month. And wow. I've seen my mother cry twice in my life. One time was when her father died. <laughs> and the second time was when she saw my first apartment in New York. <laughs> <laughs> She walked in and she walked out sobbing, crying, and wow. like would not come back in. Wow. So, yeah, that's how I moved to New York, but I just thought it was fantastic. See you soon.